Hello and welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, Simon Hodgkins, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mel McVeigh. Mel is the Vice President of Product, Commerce and Consumer Brands at Condé Nast, a brand that I'm sure is well known and an organisation that is well known to a lot of our listeners. You're very welcome today, Mel. Yep, lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, let's get on to the show because I've got a lot of questions I want to fire at you and uh, I'm sure we'll get into some interesting discussions on today's episode. So first of all, I'd like to start by thanking you for delivering a very inspiring and inspirational keynote speech, uh, which you did at the recent Think Global Forum Summit Week. It was the first time we'd ever done a Think Global Forum over the, the course of a week, of course, online in a digital environment because of the pandemic. Uh, but could you maybe start, if you don't mind, by sharing a little bit more about your motivations, what drove you to speak about your keynote topic, which was this strategy by making puzzles, if I remember correctly, explored as a mystery, which was quite an interesting subject topic for a, a summit week. Yeah, uh, so I think that something that has fascinated me for a while in, in product is, is, is how you solve the problems of, I suppose, design, product, implementation, and technology. It actually, that idea, it's, it's obviously not mine, came from a book that I read called Curious by Ian Leslie the desire to know and why your future depends on it. And it had a really um, interesting thesis about the role of curiosity and that, you know, as we're children and as we grow up, there are different types. I can't profess to remember what they were, but ultimately it talked about um, that concept, right? And I think for me, it was a massive light bulb moment in terms of how I could frame the work that we do or the work that I've done around those two ideas because they're ultimately fundamentally different things and a lot of people I find in the technology space try and solve all problems as puzzles right everything is a backlog a roadmap a series of steps you piece it all together and ta-da you have this amazing product however I also come from a background of creativity trained um, in photography and as an artist and one of the things that you are taught at art school is to explore all ideas before making an art supper and so that element of curiosity that allows you to explore is very much a practice that I think we can do better at. And that's why, you know, why I love my job, because the intersection of creativity and delivery is at the heart of what we do. And if you don't think like an artist and break the rules, it's really hard to do innovation. And all the you know, biggest innovators, Netflix, Disney, have to actually work at that intersection. No, that's fascinating stuff, because um, I suppose it's that technical approach versus the creative approach and the, the marrying of the two and I know uh, you speak on a number of these issues like you've touched on creativity strategy photography AI so maybe could you maybe just unpack a little bit more the intersection of that and how you think about those because I, I know you've delivered some very informative discussions around those topics yeah, I mean, it's kind of like having, I don't know, two brains, two minds, two ways of looking you know, at, at, at a coin or whatever analogy you want to use. I think that, you know, we actually had a discussion about it the other day um, around some of the things we're releasing in the next couple of weeks, which is when you're a creative and as you think about the things you're trying to do, you don't really start with a blank canvas. You think about how even films or 
photographs are made, they often start with a sketch or a flat plan. They then get a storyboard. And so the, the story comes to life over time. You build it up. It's kind of the way prototyping kind of, you know, philosophy probably comes from as well. And in that context, you're not worried about deliverables or outcomes or revenue, but you are allowing your brain to put disconnected joint um, dots together. That is the beauty of, I think, of a really good strategy of taking the seemingly disconnected and making it into a story as well as a vision that people, you know, you know, buy into. On the other side is the delivery. You know, I, part of my career, and, and I, I jump every time, like one job, you know, I spent a lot of my early career as a program manager and a product manager. You know, that is all about structure. It is about frameworks. It's about tasks. It's about to-do lists. And you need that to do creativity. If you don't have that foundation, then everything is just pure chaos. And I think that while it's fundamentally important, and if you work with any engineers and they, they need structure, they need a brief, the really sort of good ones are the ones that can do a little bit of both, that kind of happy tension between when to break the rules and when not to. And I think that um, the reason I talk about those two is I, I, I've personally, I think I've had a, I don't know, a love-hate relationship with product management because it has anchored so much into transactional it is anchored so much into frameworks and a series of tasks that are repeatable. Our designs have become generic because we need to have systems design that we've lost the essence of creativity, right? And if you think about, I'm not even thinking, that might've worked in the last 10 years as technology and the internet kind of grew, but in the world today, all the things that are exploding is content, storytelling, visual, TikTok, right? Netflix, like these things start with really nebulous ideas. You know, it comes out of someone, a writer's brain or an artist's brain. Product people and technology people need to get more. They, if we need to understand our customer and understand our user, you also have to understand, certainly in my world, the head, you know, the mind of the creator. No, um, it, it kind of made me think a little bit, Mel, as you were speaking there about the the technology challenge you know you think of some of the large technology companies or some of the brands that you've mentioned and they're scaling exponentially even during a pandemic you know we're seeing huge growth in sectors where i think at the start of the at the start of the pandemic maybe a lot of people thought that businesses and some businesses have really struggled don't get me wrong i'm not not saying that some people haven't really suffered and of course the the, the tragic backdrop to people who are no longer with us um on the in the in the area of business though it, it's hard not to recognize that a lot of the brands have actually done better a lot particularly in the technology sector they're actually doing better than they've ever done uh which was which is quite surprising to maybe some of our thought processes a year year and a half ago and they have to scale don't they on an international level and maybe it it, it is a different discipline you've talked about the people that can balance both the technology side and the creative side are, are real uh, sort of linchpins almost, if I can borrow a phrase from the, uh, Seth Godin. They're kind of like the linchpins that can really help an organisation. But it's not easy, is it, measure, uh, bringing together that creativity and that scalability, that technology and sort of that uh, problem-solving methodology yeah. requires. Yeah, and you need to make space for both. When, you know, thinking about that, I have um, some colleagues that work at Adidas, right? And they, 
created an incredible campaign at the beginning of the pandemic called Home Team, right? About how, you know, exercise and kind of connectivity and, and, and you know, and all great creative is just really good storytelling, whether it's a social campaign or a blockbuster film, right? It's an ability to tell stories at, at so many different levels, visual, audio, narrative, you know, and the arcs and going back to the mysteries and puzzles, a really good film is a mystery, right? You just don't know, gosh, I started watching The Mayor of Easttown last night. Every time you think you know something, something else happens, right? If a, if a story was just a puzzle, it'd be boring, right? Because you just know the pieces that are gonna come. But I do believe that, you know, I mean, Adidas had a huge year also financially revenue wise, you know, they're ultimately selling products, right? But, and I, I know like any, no matter, what any company says about digital transformation, there is always legacy technology. There is always a, a rubric of things that you need to unpack. But certainly from a scale perspective, the brands that have done it well understand their framework of technology at scale, right? Because Netflix is actually only one product in every market with the same feature set. It's not actually a complex product. It's actually quite a simple product. What is complex is the content that is inside it. And you can, you know, if you're a legacy company like Condé, you've got the opposite problem, which is everything is complex. So before you can get to creativity, you have to solve the complexity first at a pure technology level, right? No, agreed. And um, so we, we kind of started off talking around sort of some speaking on some of these topics, but I know at uh, Condé Nast, just to bring that back in a little bit, you've been extremely busy uh, working on this am I right this September digital global issue which is a big deal for uh, Condé Nast and I'm sure for everybody who's involved in this I suppose what is a true collaboration isn't it I mean it's a it's a it's a good example of creative and technology coming together maybe you could expand a little bit on this intersection of the the art and the technology that's been involved at, at Condé uh, because I, I know that's something that's kind of hot off the press isn't it well, it almost like technically um, will be launched in a couple of hours. And I, so wow. you know, the time that this is, you know, like released, I suppose, uh, who knows what the feedback will be. But it's, so if I, you know, for anyone kind of, I don't know, listening and stuff, think of, you know, I'm saying this pre-knowing what's about to happen. Um, so in the context of, you know, maybe just before I start on the September issue, you know, the role that I have is global and, and we are going through a huge transformation. We, we did, up until a year ago, we were 12 companies, right? So therefore 12 strategies, 12 product portfolios, everything. And in the context of any of our brands, so I work across most of our global brands. So brands that have footprints in multiple markets. Condé is a mixture of brands like the New Yorker. While it's a global brand, it really is, I mean, it's the New Yorker. The teams are in New York. I mean, everything about it is about the identity of New York. And Vogue is the complete opposite. It's in 26 markets. I mean, it's the full depth and breadth of fashion and culture and media. And its beauty is, and it is in that legacy of you identify Vogue by its territory. British Vogue has a different identity to American Vogue, right? You know the edit, if you're in that world, you know Edward, you know Anna, you know, you don't actually personally know them, but you're on a first, you know, you're, you understand the role of the editor relation to the Italian Vogue. I mean, these, this brand has history, you know, over a hundred years and, and has the ability to like break the internet, even with old school legacy kind of visuals and storytelling. And I think that one of the opportunities, so in the, you know, in the next couple of hours, the first global September issue will be launched. So again, if you work in fashion, you know, it's the absolute, you know, staple book in the US. 
The Devil Wears Prada is kind of based on, on it. There's documentaries about it. It's often our biggest book and it's the first time um, a version of it will be online. Every market has contributed. So it's a truly global collaboration. Um, and from a technology perspective, you know, I can remember, you know, our first meeting where we were like, how are we going to do this, right? Like, and, and can we? We had actually a very, very short window. But in, without kind of giving too much away, the, the beauty of the collaboration was the product design and engineering with editorial were there from the beginning. And, and what we, I mean, I'm super proud of it in terms of what the team created. I, I can't take any kind of credit for it because it's the teams on the ground that have pulled it together. But it does go back to that delivery and creativity. And in simple terms, we actually made it before we produced it, if that makes sense. So normally what tends to happen, say in a creative and a product was the creatives go do all the work and then they give you all the assets and go stitch it all together. And then product and engineering go, yeah, but this doesn't work. And the ratio is not right. And what the, and I have to, and then they're up all night, you know, trying to find solutions to problems that if they had just been mapped out in the beginning would have been fine. So I'll give you the most simple one, an illustration, because as a photographic geek, I'm super proud of this, which was in the beginning of the brief, as you can imagine, it needs to work on mobile and desktop. And the ratio is visually a different. One is landscape and one is portrait. And so if you don't plan that properly from a production perspective, you could end up having really tiny videos on your mobile that aren't mobile friendly. And the majority of our traffic is on mobile. And so part of the creative brief to the photographers and the videographers was that they need to be able to, needed to be able to shoot so that in the editing process, we could edit both ways. So it is only one film. I mean, there are multiple films, right? But there is only one creation of that film, right? But the way that they produced it allowed us in the editing process to create a portrait version and a visual uh, a landscape version. It also then was an extension. We have our own video player. The video teams so then had to create two players. But in, in simple terms, from a consumer perspective, what you see on what you will see um, on the desktop and on the mobile is exactly the same assets, but they're designed for the device. Now, if we had not been involved in that creative briefing, that would never have happened. Right. So the, I know it sounds little and technical, but if you think about it in a world of multimedia. You actually need engineering in the room from the beginning. So we prototyped it, we mocked it up, we, you know, showcased a like 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 a film, right? It started as a sketch, it then became a storyboard, it then became a prototype with fake assets, and then it became a real thing. Rather than okay, technology, here's everything. You got two weeks, or in fact, we're so late, you've got three days. Do it. Um, and they've been tweaking. I mean, I can know the teams have been up most of the last couple of nights. Um, because they've also wanted to add things and, and I haven't actually seen the final cut, but the thing about the intersection of creativity and delivery, we don't make transactional products. Our product is not Deliveroo. Our product is not, you know, Uber Eats. Our product is not Uber, right? It isn't about getting you from A to B. It's about storytelling. And to do true storytelling, we need to be in the room with the editorial team. That's my long answer. I'm super proud of this project and I'm really proud that our uh, uh, product design and engineering has really worked together with the edit and creative to make this, which I hope is well received, um, September issue across the globe in every language. It's on every website. It's huge. It's a huge deal, isn't it, for the Condé Nast stable uh, to produce something that has, what did you say, over 100 years of tradition in Vogue alone? Uh, yeah. And you mentioned like the New Yorker and Vogue. And these are the, these are the very top draw. I mean, these are sort of the... Um, 
the magazines, the print, the content, the storytelling that, you know, you would consider first class publications globally. So it's, it's also a huge change, isn't it? And uh, I can imagine there's been a few creative tensions between the various global editors. Maybe that's not something you can talk about, but. No, no, it's kind of not. I think that everyone's really cognizant of, you know, the transitions we need to make. Our conversations are now global. It doesn't matter whether you're a star in Korea or whether you're Billie Eilish in the US, you have resonance to a global audience. I think that, and you, I mean, the words that you use, right? Publication, magazine, we are a heritage print company. I mean, that is our mindset. But I feel that I'll reframe it another way in terms of the way that we hire, right? Rather than say, you know, there's always creative tension. You don't get good creativity without tension. But it's really interesting when you meet, again, product designers and engineering. I've also worked on a lot of travel. It was always a universal question in a job interview. Like, what do you like about travel? Or what do you like about our brands? For me, it doesn't matter how good you are at your craft. If you can't talk about our products, then you're not going to help us do amazing things, right? I've had many interviews recently where people go, oh, I don't use, I don't read any of your mags or I don't look at your content. And I'm like, they go, but I have a framework. You know, I know how to do user journeys. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't help me, right? Because we are, our, our, our product is our content. Our product is, is what you say, we're first class. And our job in product and design is to take that heritage of print and translate a version of that online, right? When you do that, you actually have full buy-in with the editors. If you talk their language, no different to talking to your users. And so in that context, we've had great creative conversations about how you do something or how you film. And all those media, you know, players, we do. A lot of our work now is video, it's photographic, it's audio, it isn't words. New Yorker is more words, but Vanity Fair. I mean, these our brands will um, drive and thrive on visual culture. I mean, Vanity Fair, Annie Leibovitz, you talk about, you know, photography and the role that it has. This, yeah, this isn't about flows and putting products, but it is sometimes putting products in a basket. It's a really different paradigm. Yeah, I think last time we spoke, and maybe you could give me a quick update on this, but I think it was the traveller side of things that was doing surprisingly well even though people weren't doing international travel is that still the case and that's very that's a very visual medium isn't it you know there's a lot of photography a lot of video in sort of the the traveler side of things isn't there yeah it's one of our highest performing stable brands at the moment i mean travel is recovering yeah um, so it's a slightly different um paradigm but yeah i mean we look it's really interesting for our brands, the ones that were very lended towards at-home activities, so like Bon Appetit or even Vanity Fair and why it had huge growth last year. Obviously a bit of a plateau now when everyone wants to be inside. But Traveller had a had a really terrible early start, as you can imagine, because it, A, everyone was, you know, there's a whole round. I mean, that, that year is, is so interesting if you reflect on it and you've been lucky to have an okay experience. But I think that in, in that context, it's again the, the tension between anything about intuition and then data. We use data a lot to kind of track our trends. We were able to spot trends and then pivoted our content strategy. And then a lot of it comes down to intuition. If you work in travel, you can kind of smell the recovery, if that makes sense. So it goes back to, you know, in, in a in my in my world with my teams, is you've got to really understand your product and the market. And 
travel did operate like anyone any country the moment people could get outside the first thing they did was get in their cars or get on a train they're not flying they're not leaving their country but travel didn't really stop just where you went to changed and it became hyper local now it's becoming regional and then like last recovery will be international but you know america's booming mexico's back to pre-pandemic levels of of travel and that is partly because, you know, even though in the UK, as of yesterday, it's on the red list, as a country, it's got back to pre-COVID levels due to the fact that Americans go there. So this is a bit about, you know, if you understand your sector, any sector, you can see the green shoots of recovery potentially before someone else. No, that's that's very interesting. I was actually speaking only this week to um, uh, the manager of Visit Sweden just as a just as a side note and it was interesting how you know they were an organization that had to attract international visitors to Sweden obviously but had to completely pivot their strategy you know full digital transformation start talking about staycations overnight and they came up with two great campaigns one was called the drinkable country and one was called the edible country where they set up these tables in nature all around the country and in the cities to really encourage their own citizens to go out and explore. And I think it, it spoke to me anyway, when I was talking to uh, Ruth Dollar from Visit Sweden recently, that, um, you know, people have been forced to think, haven't they, in a digital global manner. Uh, and you, maybe your, your core audience has had to change overnight almost in some cases. But you're right, that international travel um, is coming back and uh, you know we're all watching the, the the changes on a daily basis as to the the different rules and regulations depending on which part of the world it is but i, I found it fascinating that the uh, the traveler magazine was doing exceptionally well and as you say it's it's it continues to to outperform which is it's interesting i did hear many moons ago and i don't know whether it still holds true today but that in the print magazine, you know, sort of the, the non-digital world many years ago, they were kind of these luxuries that you you stuck with. So even during times of recession, you felt like treating yourself to a really nice magazine, you know, something about cracking the spine, the smell of the print, the, the feel, the texture, that experience of just looking after yourself for what isn't a huge amount of money to... to uh, to people to have that luxury and I'm just wondering how that translates into a digital world now you know um that is a current kind of existential question if I'm actually truly honest and goes back to when you talk about like art and creativity and then delivery how do you translate that feeling online because it's a different consumption experience mm. um I have that conversation a lot with sort of people in the photographic industry about photo books right and the the like how you open, read and consume a book in, in paper form and holding it, magazine, et cetera, is a really different experience. I mean, I still have friends that subscribe to The New Yorker and reserve time on a Saturday to just read it in a park. Like there's a ritual that exists. Now that isn't the same when you've got it on your line, online and it's streaming. I think for people within art, kind of sector and industry and certainly mine need to think about those new challenges in a different way so the desire to consume content about fashion understanding about fashion maybe i'll use the one that really interested me this year 
was around um, how the big fashion houses applied their fashion shows. Because normally it was traditional catwalk. You know, you went to Paris and you went to Milan and you kind of went around and it was all recorded. It's not an area I'm fully immersed in, but, you know, getting snippets. But, you know, this year in the last season, a lot of it was digital. It had VR and AR. It was live streamed and it had a mixture of like 3D. AR. So creatives just adapt. I mean, this is the beauty about coming from a creative background or a, a background where change doesn't frighten you, that you just adapt, right? And if there is any one positive outcome of, of, the, of the pandemic is that it forced people who may have been a bit slow to change their behaviour to do it. Like, it's again, that narrative of, oh, no, in business, we can't work from home, we won't be productive, it's impossible, and so forth. Well, now most companies are keeping, you know, remote policies and allowing their staff. Um, sometimes it creates a bit of a break to kind of make you rethink how something needs to be done, right? Same with print to digital, right? We just need to think slightly back to the history, but think of the, like I said, with the September issue, think of the device, you know, in print, you think about the paper, the colour, the print. In digital, I think about the device. I think about the scale. I think about the screen. 100%. So um, I wanted to touch on as well, because we've spoke a lot about sort of the creative requirements in this sort of digital transformation. And I know that uh, a little while back, you were a, a director or co-director at She Says, weren't you? Yeah. And She Says was very much, what well, it is very much about promoting and inspiring women to take up careers within the creative industry. Um, I'm just wondering on your, your thoughts on that now, as you sort of, you're, you're sort of really engaged in, in the digital world now and, and the creativity and the technologies blurring from your sort of She Says experiences. Are you meaning in the relationship to diversity in the sector at the moment or women in media? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just wondering because I, I, I know that, um, you know, promoting people in the industry, particularly in the creative industry, uh, and when you, when you think about the technology industry, I think that what I'm trying to say is that technology historically has been quite a, a male engineering focus, not always, but, you know, in a lot of cases you often hear people talking about the male dominance uh, and particularly with Silicon Valley companies, for example, people designing products on an international scale, there is, there has been, and maybe still is in some areas, a lack of diversity and inclusion, which ultimately impacts the creativity and the global scale of some products. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that uh, I've, it's hard because I'm older, right? I mean, I'm, I mean, part of the reason for, for she says for me was I moved to the UK and didn't have a network. And so it was one of the, the best ways for, for me before I really got involved. And I'm always one of those people that go, how can I help? Um, it was a really small kind of organisation and then we kind of grew it. So it was both part of a way for me to meet people, but also just do something within the digital sector in the UK. Um, and I've made incredible, my, my best friend in the UK I met you know, through she says, and it 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 is fascinating now. Look, it's twelve years ago, right? And I did it for five years. I'm, you know, that's a decade ago in terms of even my life and where I was back then. I don't feel that all the questions have been resolved. I think that there, no. How do I put it? In the last ten years, there's been a massive transformation, right, in terms of women in in industry, both technology and media, and growth. Still, really small proportion. I think that 
Um, but the, the kind of journey isn't over. And I'll say it in the context of, I'll say Conde, right? We're a global company, 6,000 people. And I feel very proud of the fact that certainly my team, we are a mixture of cultures, languages, um, you know, diversity in terms of, you know, even our belief systems and so forth. That being said, it, you know, hiring can be really hard, right? We still probably anchor from a gender perspective to being more male. Um, and we are relentless. And I think that, and I talk about this a lot with my teams, we have kind of women's networks um, and, and non-binary and so forth within Condé. It's a, now also when I look back and see younger women, half the time it's just confidence, right? You can see a really big distinction um, in leadership and kind of propensity to just kind of put your hat in the ring. So I try and do a lot of work more internally now rather than say in an industry, but it's something that I think about actually more and more because it's our role, my role as the leader with our team to just, it's not even not, it's not even a negotiable topic, but it isn't in our world. Like we talk about it all the time, DNI, and and we have our own diversity officer at Condé. And a thing that really matters to me is all the perspectives. And the one that, you know, I want to champion more and more is a really global one, right? Um, we have, you know, there are challenges. There's always some part of the diversity spectrum that may not be working. I don't, I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer every box every time, but as long as you're across it, hmm. um, that I, that, and, and you can kind of report on it and feel confident that you're doing the right things. And as a result, you actually then build a better culture. Like, you know, goes back to, I'll use Netflix again, because is that, you know, Netflix, still one platform and one technology, but, you know, some of its biggest shows in the last year, you know, have been Spanish globally, right? Has been French. And I'm sure some research would have said that, oh, no one watches, you know, subtitles. And what we had a, was it last year? Yeah, we, you know, the best film, not foreign language film, was a Korean film. That shows that the world is changing, right? There's a propensity, I think he, I'm gonna be awful, I can't remember the director's name, but said in the speech that like, you know, just reading, you know, that two inches above the screen isn't like, isn't a blocker for people to consuming content that isn't coming out of Hollywood, right? Um, so I think that we've come far, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, no, you mentioned the word confidence there a moment ago and, I was talking to Tammy Darcy, who is, she's a founder of something called the Shona Project in Ireland. Um, and it was really uh, something that came um, out of working with young women and giving them role models and sharing uh, successful people to help build some of that confidence. and. She's been on sort of national television in, in Ireland and she's built a, a very successful organisation helping um, people between the age of 13 and 15, uh, really a lot, of, a lot of focus on schools and confidence and role models and, and experience. And it was amazing talking uh, to uh, Tammy, uh, the founder of the Shona Project, about uh, how important that was, particularly now uh, more than ever. So to some degree, you think we've come a long way. You're talking about it sort of a decade ago uh, when, you, when you got involved. But um, there are still uh, glaring gaps in, in lots, of, lots of areas that uh, we're, still, we're still working on. I think it's better, but there's a lot more work to do, isn't there? 
Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm a bit older now, right? But there are kind of waves, particularly in a sort of female context, that are questions or that you ask yourself that I think is very much towards that, um, you know, femininity kind of paradigm that doesn't really exist in a in the context of you know other other genders, right? But the confidence thing still exists. I mean, I, I see it with our teams all the time, but the role modeling then becomes from the leaders about setting tones of behavior, right? And setting tones of expectations of how you operate. And, you know, I have been in some very aggressive cultures um, at different organizations and also incredibly inclusive. And so it kind of comes in, you, you know, we used to say this, she says, you know, you can't be the, you can't be the, no, you can't change what you can't see. So if you are visible and there are other, you know, role models that are visible, then, you know, it basically helps change, you know, you might not actually see the winds of change until kind of over time. And it's not like, oh, today we're doing this and then tomorrow something else. Sometimes it's quite subtle. And, you know, our majority of our leadership at Condé globally is female, right? Our CEO is male, but yeah. our creative officer is female. Our CMO is female. Our head of commercial is female. Our head of video is female. Like we do have an incredibly and, and diverse, right? Mm. Um, so I'm very proud to be an organization that has female women in leadership, particularly given that the majority of our staff, not in technology, I think we've got work to do, but Condé as a company, you know, has, has an element of balance. Yeah. Now, so important, and particularly what you were talking about subtitles and, and uh, you know, Netflix, and it, it's not a barrier. And I, I find myself now, the content I consume is international in nature more and more than, say, when I was growing up, you know. Uh, it was very sort of, you, you sort of were in your little media bubble, your, your little country bubble. Yeah. But because of technology, because of the, the various screens that you're talking about, that you now have to really be uh, condescent of with your Condé Nast publications in, in a digital format. Uh, we're all carrying around these little TV screens in our pocket, aren't we? So you might not be able to travel, but technology is borderless, right? Yeah, TikTok, yeah. Facebook. Um, it's more the legacy kind of publications that kind of struggle and, or even rights management, you know, it's um, TV yeah. is still very territorial, but, and I, I mean, I have to face that every day. If I want to watch or look at anything in Australia versus the UK, currently in Spain or in America, you know, I have to navigate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And licensing is still a big, yeah, licensing is still a big part of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Olympics, I suppose, that's very current at the moment is a great example in terms of their media and uh, how that's broadcast around the world. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, Condé Nast then, can I just maybe ask you, because um, obviously we know each other a little bit at this stage, but there's maybe some of our listeners that would maybe be interested to understand a little bit about your own journey to Condé Nast, a little bit about what you do in Condé Nast and sort of the the areas of responsibility, because we've been talking about this digital issue, but I know there's a whole world of Condé Nast behind the scenes. And you, I know you, you're very passionate about your photography and you're kind of, you know, we sort of spoke about that last time and uh, maybe just share a little bit about your own story, your own journey and, and what sort of you're involved in in Condé Nast um, as best you can. I'm sure there's, there's, there's a lot there. 
Uh, let, I'll, I was thinking which way to start from the beginning or the end of the story. I'll start from the end. So my role at the moment is um, VP of product. So um, what that entails is I look after six brands. Majority of them are the um, global brands. So that is Vogue, GQ, Condé Nast Traveller, Architectural Digest, Allure and Glamour. Um, we have a... Um, we are 18 brands globally in 12 markets. So the largest market is the US, majority are in uh, Europe, so France, Spain, you know, Italy. We're also in Russia and China. Um, we have a variety of licensee kind of markets as well. So Australia is a licensee market. We're about 6,000 employees, right, across the globe, um, working across those titles. I describe it often as like, you are, it's almost like working at little mini companies because the personality and the kind of culture inside GQ is really different to the personality. You know, there's a lot of centralized services, but the editorial teams and obviously what they do is different. So you kind of have to know, oh, I'm in a GQ meeting or I'm in a, you know, in a Vogue meeting. So it's quite a, quite a stretch. Um, in my sort of ecosystem, I have about, I mean, I have about 22 product managers, but um, I look after the portfolio of product design and engineering. So that's about 110 people that is managing those six brands across five of them are in multiple markets, both being the largest. We have two other portfolios um, for the brand. So one's um, actually before the sound, it's a really complex, but it's like I look after a series of brands on the consumer side. I'm also responsible for a technology which is commerce, and that is partly due to my background. And we have three, commercial being ad tech, one being subscriptions and membership, and being commerce. And our subscriptions and membership portfolio tends to have the brands in them that have paywall, New Yorker, Wired, Vanity Fair, Bon Appetit, and oh, I can't remember what Ben's part, yeah. So we are a real, you know, it's a portfolio, it's large. And, and my job is to sit within the global product and technology organization to basically simplify all the services. I just, you know, we're in the process of migration and merging and consolidation, um, as well as actually transforming the customer experience. Like how do you design services? Vogue at the moment is a real spaghetti soup. So one of our big initiatives is to kind of bring it under one house. Um, not the content, 100% not the content, but the, the, the structure by which that content is published so that it's easy for, easier for us to scale as well as move into new monetization areas. So commerce without it being just, here's another shop, like a really nice intersection of con content curation and commerce. Um, and I'm one of the few in Europe. I mean, I obviously don't have a you know, European accent um, and then I'll go on to how I got there. But I think that probably the reason I got there, it was a bit of luck with that, with that question. And there was not a role when I started. So I. I don't know how to describe, you know, how you get a kind of dream job when it just sort of fell on your lap. But I, I'd actually kind of say it didn't, which is kind of the thing, right? Which is every single element of tapestry of thing that I did in my career kind of led me to, to an ability to be able to pitch work that I could do. Because I, when we, we're doing a lot of hiring, it's really hard to find people that can do content and delivery, right? It's not the same as e-commerce, not the same as building big platform capabilities, right? So, you know, in my previous role in commerce, I would not have really hired publishing people. That's kind of my role, just looking after brands, running, you know, a global team and bringing, and bringing it together. How did I get there? I, I always jump a fence and go one side to the other. So my background is creative. I don't come from an engineering or a business background. Um, I trained as an artist. 
Um, and I am also a bit of a travel up. So that's kind of the DNA of me as a person. Um, my first job was actually at Lonely Planet. So I'm a bit, as my previous boss would, would call me a, a method product manager. I really live and breathe the product. I don't work well personally on in companies where I can't be really passionate about the thing that we do. And so in the sectors I've tended to work in, it's either travel or it's photography or publishing because they're the things I'm, and, I, and commerce. I mean, I landed in commerce a bit randomly, but it was, through, it was for a photographic company. So, and I collected skills. If I talk to people about career, it's never a linear path. And that's a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. I don't think I designed a 10 year plan, but I did in every one of my jumping in my stepping stones. So if I started in art, I then went back and I went into program management. When I'd done program management, I went into kind of business and running teams. When I went from teams, I kind of went back to creative. Creative, I then went back into kind of managing bigger projects. Um, but every time I kind of made that leap, it was to do with the fact with the skill I didn't have. And I would, if I never got, a, if I never got a job that I really wanted, I would ask why. And often I was told, well, you don't have, you know, the experience of running a PL. So what did I do? I went and got experience running a PL. Then I was told I didn't get a job that I really wanted because I didn't have true commerce background. So I went off and I got true commerce background. So by the time I got to Condé, I had a really good um, suite of skills that just, not that they're unique, but, you know, I, I don't sit on one trajectory. So I'm more of a portfolio, you know, kind of career person. Um, but it's allowing me to do the job that I do at scale. And I'll go back to the very first piece of advice, my very, you know, my oh, actually two, that my very first two bosses gave me when I started. The first one, he was the COO and he said, I'm not gonna give you a portfolio of 20 products, projects to manage. I was a program manager at the time. He said, I'm just gonna give you one and you're gonna do it well. Then I'm gonna give you two, then I'm gonna give you five and then I'm gonna give you 10. So by the time you finished, you'll be able to run a program rather than a project. And he was right. I say that to my teams now, product managers, you want to run one team, then you're going to run three, then you're going to run 10 because going from none to 15, and that happens a lot, is just destined to failure because my second boss was HR. He said, if you want to run a business, you need to understand human behavior and you need to understand people and what drives them. And if you want to get them working for you, I have a team of 100, right? Um, they need to believe in what you're talking about they need to believe that you can, you are going to help them. You're going to give them the information they need that they can survive and thrive. And so people and structure allows you to be creative, if that makes sense. So they're all building blocks and that's how it kind of got me to where I am today. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Mel. I'm sure that's, that's going to be fascinating uh, for people to, to listen to. And um, I, I did have a little wry smile when you reeled off everything you do at Condé Nast and you went, yeah, that's kind of what I do as if it was no big deal. Like it is, it is a huge uh, responsibility. And um, I wanted to ask you before we sort of head towards wrapping up though, uh, you've got this huge sort of global launch now with, with Vogue, which I know is a big, a big, um, a big move for the Condé Nast uh, organization and continued success i'm sure that'll go exceptionally well i hope so otherwise it'll feel weird <laughs> if you listen to it you know, um, after. yeah but I, I wanted to ask you about what else is on your horizon is there anything else that you're 
that you're thinking of a little bit down the road? Is it is it more art and creativity, or is there anything that we haven't mentioned today that you'd like to maybe share? No, I think it's about doubling down and doing more, bigger, and better in a creative and collaborative way. I mean, I really do hope today, like whatever, you know, it's it's only a small piece of the puzzle. It's not, it's sort of huge, but not in both. But I think that um, you know, personally, professionally, the one thing that I'm trying to do more and more. I kept, I kept my creative and my product far apart for a very long time because it tended to confuse people being able to literally context switch between one meeting talking about delivery revenue and numbers and then flipping into another meeting talking about, you know, the narrative of some photograph. And so, but now more and more, those worlds are colliding and merging. So I think personally being able to find um, ways to make that better because I think our products become better, not just because of me, but because of the way the teams work and bringing creatives who may not be familiar with digital next to engineers and making engineers who are not that maybe that familiar with creative understand the craft. When you do that, you know, magic happens. My job is to be, is to join the dots, serendipity, like throw people, the right people in the room, put it back, you know, some of the best creative is team driven. So that's my job and I want to do it at scale with the full depth and breadth of our teams in around the world, which sort of sadly, I've done, not sadly, you know, ironic way, I've done most of this from my room in Madrid um, over the last year, which for me is the most absurd thing. And I, I want to meet half the, half the people I work with, I have never met. And it's just like bizarre that I have quite intense relationships. And I hope one day that there's an ability to actually, you know, meet them face to face and maybe have a wine or a soft drink and just kind of like, wow, you know, and reflect on our year and then think about how to do something better relative to climate change and everything else that's going on. This year's been a wake-up call, um, you know, but finding ways to do good. I don't know, is that a bit too broad? Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's amazing. You just uh, reminded me, like, I, I have, and I'm sure lots of people have very close digital relationships with people now that maybe their organization has onboarded over the last year or so and you've never actually met these people but you you do through digital to some degree through this type of medium feel as though you have that connection and relationship and there's a big debate isn't there about whether it's ever going to be the same it's not the same I prefer to meet in person and digital but it it is hard to ignore at this stage that we have forged significant work relationships with people that we've never met in person you know yeah so it goes back to then to the one thing actually then to bounce back at you and you you're right like I I started to see my teams back in London recently and it was aside from being amazing different conversations were kind of created but the thing that really fascinates me the most is um algorithms bias and trying to bring, bring serendipity back into the game um that's probably I think sitting in the back of my mind around how do you solve that conundrum because algorithms I think are a little bit dangerous and so we have a role in kind of navigating forth with a very very new technology. Do you know that's that's our next discussion uh, because <laughs> I, I also think an awful lot around that algorithm bias and what you're feeding and it's it's only the data that you have which is inherently biased in lots of areas and also past it's not the yeah, future exactly yeah and i i mean i was talking back to that visit sweden discussion that we were having earlier you know um ruth was sharing with me how the government has this sort of 
separate board who, you know, even go down to the level of trying to remove bias out of textbooks in schools, uh, which have been there for for a long time. You know, you know, this sort of group of people, they're doing it, they're doing a good job. But when you bring that into scale and technology and algorithms and what you're feeding the the data that you're feeding the machines, um, it's a whole other topic which uh, we don't have time for today. No, but, I know it's a nice end, end point yeah, to a new conversation, it, but they are inherently yeah, biased. So yeah, yeah. I don't know if you can. There's a great documentary on Netflix about it called Coded Bias, but the you know seeing them in action is really interesting because they're only as good as the inputs. Like, but I, like I said in my talk, right? Like outcomes are only as good as the inputs that go in, right? The things you feed it, like making a cake, right? You don't put in good ingredients. You still, you know, you don't mix it up right. You're still going to get a shit cake, right? <laughs> well, listen, the, the ingredients okay. that, that you guys are putting in at Condé Nast continue to, to taste wonderful. We love the outputs. We love the content. Uh, it truly is world, a world-class uh, organisation. The storytelling is is significantly... Uh, head and shoulders above a lot of of uh, content that's out there, and it, I, I loved your your sort of anecdote about people who actually do reserve time to go to the park to read the New Yorker and prefer maybe that sort of slightly longer form article, you know. And then the flip side of that, people that just want that instant snackable content right now, this second, and and are moving in a different a different way. So. Yeah, addressing that global audience, continued success with everything that you're doing, Mel. It's always fascinating to talk to you. I really do enjoy it. Thank you so much. It was really lovely um, for you to invite me today. I've really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure, Mel. And I I do want to say that that sort of brings us towards the end of today's show, uh, obviously with Mel McVeigh, the Vice President of Product commerce and consumer brands at Condé Nast. Um, please make sure that if you're, if you're watching this or listening to this, that you tune in again to listen to the next Vista Talk show, where once again, uh, we will look to have interesting topics with interesting people from all around the world. Thank you. Thank you.